This is an ABC podcast. Ah, the Barbie's on. Welcome to Science Friction. Natasha Mitchell here with Belinda Smith. I am so hungry. You and me both. It smells so good. What's on the menu? Okay, so over here on the left, we have some lamb, which I've marinated overnight in some lemon, garlic and rosemary. Now, I don't mean to be rude, but you know I'm not going to eat that. Well, luckily for you, I have accommodated your vegetarianism. And on the right, we have some halloumi kebabs. Oh, yeah, halloumi. (laughs) I love halloumi. But look, this meal that we're preparing on Science Friction this week, it kind of presents a dilemma for you. It really does. I look at these chops and I think, yum. But also, I love animals. And the thought of them being in pain really hurts my heart. So I spoke to Rachel Ankeny, who's a professor at the University of Adelaide, who researches this kind of thing, and I asked her, am I alone? No. So there's actually a name for it. It's not just about pain, but even knowing that they had to be killed to become your meat, right? And so it's known as the meat paradox. Something we've done some research on, my colleague who's a psychologist also does research around What's the cognitive dissonance in a fact that many of us create to be able to be meat eaters. And so in some part, what we find is people either don't think about it when they're choosing to buy, prepare, consume meat, or they, they in some sense, tell themselves stories about the humane conditions under which the animals have been kept. Now here in Australia, you know, there are very high standards of animal welfare, but there are still some puzzles around how we could make practices even more humane. And pain is one of those areas, I think, that presents a lot of opportunities for trying to do even better. And I want to know how we can do better and minimise the pain that animals go through. Professor Mark Hutchinson from the University of Adelaide has spent his whole career studying pain in humans, which made him wonder, could his work help other species? I come from a long line of sheep farmers, been a, been a long time meat eater. It sits with the cognitive dissonance of caring for animals and trying to improve their life, but then also really enjoying a good quality steak. Um, I sit with that, that somewhat contradiction um, that the animal has died for, for me to eat their protein. But if my research can allow for those animals to then experience less pain, uh, I think that's what I'm excited about. Life on a farm involves a bit of rough and tumble. Just like for us in our everyday human experience, we can end up with the knocks, the bruises, the the fractures, the, the skin cuts. Then there are the things that we do to animals in the course of farming them. There are procedures like castration, there's mulesing. Now, a warning This is pretty gross, but it involves cutting wrinkly skin from around a lamb's behind to stop maggots hatching in the folds and feeding on the sheep while it's still alive. Mulesing is incredibly painful, so scientists are breeding sheep with taut, not wrinkly skin. And that's just a couple of examples. There are a myriad of potential points in the life of an animal where acute pain can occur. For the most part... Acute pain in farm animals can be dulled with a handful of veterinary drugs like spray-on anaesthetics. But our story today is more about that lingering kind of pain which sticks around long after an injury has healed. That's chronic pain. Chronic pain is a really insidious problem. We think of it as the cancer of the soul. 
It might start out as acute pain, and acute pain, it serves a vital function. It's a warning. It's beneficial for us to know, I've got a splinter in my finger, I really need to do something about that. Those same protective benefits of acute pain for animals uh, do actually come through. So a little bit of information is good. When it gets severe, we don't want that level of information and and that's where pain becomes maladaptive or or, or pathological. That is, chronic pain doesn't serve any useful purpose. So in humans, if you are in pain for three months and one day, you have chronic pain. It is unfortunately as poorly defined as that. The injury that may have started the pain condition, the surgery, the infection, will have fully resolved. There is nothing on the surface that is easily seen that demonstrates that you have an injury, but the pain persists. So we are trying to work out now where the largest amount of problem pain is for animals. And if you've experienced chronic pain or you know someone who has, you know how soul-destroying it can be. It just felt like deeper. It felt like it was a bone pain. It's like your brain is actually being squeezed. Never goes away. That's frightening. You can feel it pulsating. You don't live. When you're a chronic pain sufferer, you exist. But where we can articulate this experience in words you and I understand, animals can't. We don't share a spoken language. If only we could talk to animals. We know that animals experience pain. And the key part about our evolving understanding of what pain is, is that pain is not only a sensory information, the feel of pain, but there is an emotional component, not trying to anthropomorphize human emotions onto animals, but the states of happiness and sadness are now well-established in animals. We don't actually know the full breadth of acute and chronic pain states in animals because we don't have the measurement technologies yet to validate that. And that specific challenge of measurements and identification is the challenge that my team have taken up. On Science Fiction, that's a pain scientist, Mark Hutchinson. And Natasha Mitchell here with Belinda Smith this week, talking pain and particularly the experience of chronic pain in the animals that might end up on your dinner plate. So it's, it's really interesting, this, this conversation about pain in other animals and of course we're animals too but we speak a common language so you can tell me if you're in pain and likewise me but my dog I can't I'm looking for for signs that I can barely understand sometimes you know you intuit likewise you've got an elderly cat now as much as I'd like to think that when I talk to her she can understand me and I can understand her meows it's not the case and you know I have this really interesting memory of a relative who had a cat called Rosie who was just the moodiest cat for years right and then a dentist worked out that there was something wrong with one of her teeth and she'd been to regular vet checkups totally transformed cat afterwards like transformed into this affectionate purring sitting on your lap cat so clearly She'd been having pain, chronic pain, but no one knew, not even the vet. Could you imagine if Rosie could make that clear early on when her teeth started hurting? And so even a cat, like a one-on-one relationship with a cat makes that hard. But imagine if you're on a farm. I mean, some of these farmers don't see their animals for ages. They might only see them three or four times over the whole life of the animal. So how can they make that judgment call as to whether the animal's in pain? 
is I'm interested to know what we can learn from human biology. You know, maybe we could be a kind of guinea pig for understanding pain in other animals. And then use that to give them a voice. If we use humans as an animal model for animals, we can actually learn a lot about some of the fundamental neurobiology, the brain and spinal cord workings of of pain and what is called nociception, which is the electrical or ionic signals that go along the neuronal fibres. We have discovered that we can diagnose pain from a blood test. There are things that change in our blood that change when we, humans, experience acute and chronic pain. Let's say you hurt your back. What happens is the nerves at the injury site send signals to your brain via the spinal cord, letting you know your body is under threat. So your back hurts, but that pain is actually generated by your brain. Now, your immune system also springs into gear to protect your body, churning out molecules such as inflammatory cytokines. And it's these that Mark's team's test is picking up in your blood. The same occurs in other species, and through to animals, small animals, dogs, cats, and livestock, pigs, sheep, and beef cattle. The opportunity, therefore, is to actually, for the first time, give animals a voice at a molecular and cellular level to understand, do you have pain or not? Okay, here's some science that could change the way you think about pain. First, different experiences of pain, say a migraine versus really bad period pain, they're associated with different immune responses. You can actually detect a distinct signature for pain by measuring immune molecules in your blood. So they've developed a test to do just that, using a technology called hyperspectral imaging. How it works is, different immune molecules in blood reflect different colours, and this test basically bathes blood in light and measures what bounces back. The goal is a quick, simple finger prick test that can happen in your GP's office or on a farm. The ability to have an objective measurement, quantification of pain, it really will crack open a huge new opportunity in farming and small animal practices to say, I can see pain now because I have a number in front of me. Can I now intervene with an effective, optimal, almost individualised pain treatment or other mitigation strategy that decreases the pain and hence increases the well-being and quality of life for the animal. You can look for pain in blood, but you can also look at the central nervous system. So when you injure yourself, different regions in your brain and spinal cord related to pain and emotion start firing. Now in chronic pain, what happens is that initial response does something to change the brain and spinal cord even long after your cut or muscle strain or whatever is healed over? Yeah, so we know that the brain and spinal cord adapts to chronic pain. Even after the chronic pain may have subsided months to years down the line in a human, there is still a molecular and cellular memory of those events occurring in the brain and spinal cord. So this neural signature of pain, also known as nociception, it can be seen if we stick ourselves in a high-resolution brain scanner. And literally, there are more cells and more reactive cells persisting in the parts of the brain and spinal cord that are responsible for the processing and signaling of this nociception information. In humans, we need to use extremely complex PET and fMRI imaging to be able to start seeing the resolution of those signatures. But working with livestock, 
they've needed to come up with a different approach. In livestock, we are able to actually see those signatures from their brains and spinal cords collected in the abattoir. In the abattoir, it's much, much easier. So let's meet Lachlan Douglas. He's joining us from his family farm in southwestern New South Wales, where he and his wife Holly have quite the canine brigade. So I've got Kena, Seek, Gosh, Jets, Lady, River, Tookie, Zipper and Dolly. And my wife has Razor, Tex, Splash, Sasha, Turbo, Jet. I love my dog to bits. Bernie, Della. I love him dearly. Delia and Racket. He ain't no peak or spits. And also we have a chocolate Labrador called Sugar. Lachlan, Holly and their dogs travel round Australia as contract musterers, rounding up sheep and cattle for farmers. Oh, I love it. You've got a dog called Booney. Your wife's got a dog called Booney. That's amazing. <laughs> oh, Booney. He's um, he's a lovable larrikin. He's more of just for his personality than his work, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> he's just a goofball. Lachlan's brother Mitchell, he's a sheep farmer in South Australia. And Mitchell got talking to pain scientist Mark Hutchinson while queuing for a beer at a farmer's event. And the unexpected result was an interesting partnership on how to prevent pain. They've now got some industry funding from Meat and Livestock Australia to do the work. Lachlan had already been trying some experiments of his own. His focus, though, was on building the resilience and psychological well-being of lambs from early in their life. And Mark knew this is a factor in how animals, including us, develop chronic pain. Our early life experiences can prime us biologically to be more or less susceptible to chronic pain later on, through the influences of stress hormones, inflammation and changes in brain development. One of the fascinating things about the brain and spinal cord is that we in neuroscience call it plastic. Basically, it's moldable, it's adaptable the whole time. These adaptability changes occur during the brain development, so those early years, early months of life. So imagine the first few months of a lamb's life, hanging out with mum, drinking her milk, frolicking in the pen, until it's time to be weaned. And so the weaning process and eventual separation from the mother, these are all occurring at times when the brain is developing. Weaning usually involves separating lambs from their mum, popping them in a pen, and then turning them out into a paddock after a few days. Lachlan's taking an approach generally used in cattle, but not sheep. He brings the group of lambs together on that first day and walks them through the sheepyards or the draft to get them used to the sights and sounds and smells, like the gates clanging and the dogs barking, people talking. In the yards we'll have uh, like a dog food bag and you can rustle that and they experience the noise and they'll get a bit of a scare but they'll process that themselves to work out that that wasn't that scary and the next day you might increase the noises and the sounds and then slowly but surely they're they don't spook as much on a noise or a fright it's kind of an exposure therapy and i suppose that's the whole idea of the, the program is instead of them hearing something that scares them or seeing something that scares them it's they see it but they can process it without fretting and being yeah stressed so uh, more on what we we do is psychology based stress based but along the way it's got to have an, an impact on on pain the way they handle pain then when it's time the lambs go to the abattoir 
And Mark's pain research continues here too, with the lambs that have gone through Lachlan's exposure therapy. Whilst their, their lambs were off to, to be future lamb chops, we were able to go in and measure or collect the tissues from the brain to actually make these measurements in our laboratories. Mark and his crew are looking for key changes in the regions devoted to both pain and emotional processing. Telltale signs that the animal had experienced chronic pain during its life, or not. So that allowed us to provide specific images to compare the standard weaning practice versus this augmented weaning practice. Now it's early days. They've looked at around 60 lambs and have another 140 coming through. But so far, the results are striking enough to talk about. We've done work in sheep to show for the first time that just minor changes to the weaning practice of sheep foundationally changes the neurodevelopmental trajectory of the brain of those lambs into future grown-up sheep. Those simple changes can foundationally change the lifetime risk of developing persistent pain. It doesn't change acute pain, we think, but it will change the emotional regulation and the chronic pain likelihood for those animals. So just by walking the lambs through the yard a few times over the course of a few days and slowly increasing the amount of stuff that they see and hear and smell, it doesn't just calm them down, but it also changes their brain and its immune system. In the lambs that didn't get the exposure therapy, the immune cells in a part of their brain involved in laying down new memories and processing emotion were more reactive. Now, key here is that biology and psychology are intimately connected. They affect each other. So, for example, our state of mind, our sense of control, they actually affect our immune system. And Mark Hutchinson thinks this is key to his results. At the point of separation, the lambs, well, I think, they've gained a sense of controllability to their life experience. There are parts of their brain which we believe have become reinforced that allow them to have controllability. That minor change we know from human neurobiology is a key element of what's called learned helplessness um, or learned optimism, which is a foundational element to depression in humans. We now know that these kind of switches are occurring in the sheep brain, and all of that contributes to the future pain state and potential pain trajectory of the animal. And by reducing their likelihood of developing chronic pain, Mark thinks this work could dramatically improve the short life of a lamb bound for the dinner table. This has given us real hope that now using brains and spinal cords of, of animals that are going through to, to be future protein product for us to enjoy, we can now start to look in at the foundational neurobiology of these animals and start asking the question, has this animal at a neurobiological level had a life worth living? And are the strategies being used to reduce the pain of farm animals, like Lachlan's exposure therapy and pain relief drugs, are they actually working effectively? So what does this all mean for me as I stand at the counter of my local butcher, struggling with the cognitive dissonance of eating meats, but wanting the best for animals? We're envisaging a future grading system to sit alongside all of these practices that allows for the consumers to know that tick, yes, this is a fantastic 
quality Australian meat product, but also tick, it's been treated with the best practice, ethical and pain mitigation strategies because we are able to actually see these molecular signatures within the brain and spinal column. This is all well and good. But are farmers and musterers willing to use Lachlan's exposure therapy on their lambs? On top of everything else they have to do? There are stock handling schools that teach techniques to minimise stress in animals. But Lachlan's trying to get sheep farmers on board with his approach to weaning lambs. What sort of feedback have you had? Uh, most of the time it's, it's negative. Oh. Most of the time it's people don't want to listen. That's surprising. More with sheep. There's a lot of mentality out there that sheep are dumb and you can't train sheep, so not, not much positive feedback, that's for sure. But we know that sheep, they're highly intelligent. Yes. Unfortunately, I don't have an answer for it, because if I did, I suppose I'd be, be training a lot more sheep. But unfortunately, yeah, everyone has different opinions on it, and unfortunately, none of them are, are super positive. For now, at least, where does that leave the management of chronic pain in farm animals? When it comes to pain medication, pain scientist Professor Mark Hutchinson says we need to proceed with caution. 21 years ago, when I was just a wee PhD student, uh, was the beginning of the push by drug companies to over-prescribe opioids. And that, that was the infancy of the opioid epidemic. From the beginning of my PhD to the end of my PhD, opioid medicines for human use increased by 3,000%. In We Humans, opioid drugs like oxycodone have been doled out as a quick fix to treat chronic pain, when in fact, they can make that pain worse. I can see in my discussions at small animal veterinary conferences and other broader conferences that the attempt to mitigate pain, the discussion is exactly the same discussion that we were having around the science tables back in 2000 for human medicine. Let's learn from those mistakes and take literally logarithmic steps forward to give the best medicines, the best pain mitigation strategies for animals tomorrow, rather than waiting another 20 years of mistakes to realise we need to do better. Right now, opioids aren't widely used in veterinary medicine, but Mark's worried that might change. I am fearful that if we, as, uh, as me, as a knowledgeable scientist, don't guide those discussions today for the treatment of animals, pain properly, we will be ending up with the well-intentioned use, but unfortunately based on science, misuse of medicines to achieve a suboptimal outcome. Ultimately, if we don't want these animals to be in pain, we need to stop farming them altogether. But ethicist and philosopher Professor Rachel Ankeny says this isn't going to happen anytime soon in Australia. Australians have meat quite at the centre of their identity. There's a whole ongoing sort of dialogue culturally about can you have a proper meal? And we see a lot of advertising uses that as kind of the hinge in the way in. You know, roast and three veg, that's what you have on a Sunday. Dad's not going to barbecue tofu on a Sunday either, right? And often when you migrate, you know, one of the signs of having made it is eating a decent quantity of meat, setting aside religions where meat is problematic. When you have that little bit more disposable income, we know historically people always increase their meat consumption. Combine that with a tradition of meat eating, meat is very important to us. So it brings us full circle that I think what we need to think about, animal production isn't gonna go away, certainly not in a country like Australia, but what we all can agree on is 
we need to make sure it's being done as humanely as possible and paying more attention to pain mitigation and the complexities that surround it is an extremely important part of that picture. For contract master Lachlan, working on this project around pain, it's part of his broader philosophy to farming and to all the animals he works alongside, including his dogs. Just, it all blends in together, I, I feel. The nice nature of dogs and the softer dogs and the softer approach with those dogs, then when they go to work, they have the softer approach on livestock and guide them through the yard instead of forcing them to go places the animals don't want. The dogs just ask them nicely and, and have a really good understanding of pressure and relief. They get the response, they, they stop to, to give the, the sheep relief to say, you've done the right thing, essentially. To me, it's all the same, same as people. (laughs) We're all animals, aren't we? We are all animals. We all want to be loved and all want to be alive. Mm -mm. Those kebabs. Delicious. Lumi, hello. I see you've uh, enjoyed your four, one, two, three, four lamb chops. Well, yes. (laughs) I have very little willpower when it comes to this kind of thing. (laughs) I'm wondering how you're feeling at the end of this show. Speaking to people like Mark and Lachlan and Rachel, I'm glad that this kind of work's being done. Mm. I think animal welfare will continue to be a really big part in the choices that I make in terms of the food that I eat. And that goes for a lot of people as well. That and things like climate change. Mm. I think though, for the foreseeable future at least, I'll concentrate on eating small amounts of quality meat rather than large amounts of perhaps more processed meat. Ah, so much to think about. Science Fiction is brought to you by me, Natasha Mitchell, and... Belinda Smith. You can catch us on Twitter at Natasha Mitchell. And Science Belinda. We'll catch you next time. And be sure to spread the word about the podcast. See ya. Bye. Oh, I'm getting back to my grub. Yum. (laughs) You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.